You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, everybody. It's going to be a little bit different uh, feeling and sounding show this week uh, on this week's episode of the Minor League Baseball Podcast. My name is Tyler Mon. Sam Doctor, my co-host, is in New York City. Uh, and we are going to try to uh, make our way through it. It is a very difficult week uh, across the country and around the world for uh, billions of people, and especially uh, in this country for communities that uh, have suffered too much discrimination for too long. And uh, we know that as two guys who are lucky enough to get uh, you know paid to talk about minor league baseball and write about minor league baseball and all that, um, we're not really voices to guide you through a sensitive moment uh, in society and in history at all. Uh, but we do have access, thankfully, to incredibly intelligent uh, and very poignant voices like one you will hear today coming up here in a little bit. Um, and we will try to get a, a conversation started as it relates to what we do to, to baseball and to this baseball family of ours uh, and also to the fact that there are so many things that are so much bigger uh, than just sports and just our jobs and just our livelihoods uh, that are currently in progress uh, in society. And with that, we, we welcome you into this week's episode. Um, Sam's in New York. I'm in Denver, obviously, as we, we tell you kind of from week to week, both places that have been somewhat rocked by uh, protests and, and unrest over the last uh, now almost 10 days. Uh, but Sam, first and foremost, how are you doing uh, out where you are? I know safe, thankfully, but uh, the, the last week has been uh, a tough one for everybody. Yeah, no, it, it, speaking you know, purely as an American, um, it, it's always been sad about how black Americans have been treated in this country and um, seeing what's gone on in, in the news lately um, between George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. Um, it, it's just a lot of sadness in, in the way black communities have been treated, um, you know, for, for a long time uh, in this country. That, that's, that's not news. Unfortunately, we have new names to add to a way, way, way too long list of, um, you know, black Americans who, who have fallen to, prejudice and racism and police brutality um you know as tyler and i have said you know we're, we're two white americans in in brooklyn and denver and um you know we, we don't have experiences necessarily in terms of that effect of racism um being directly affected by it but it has affected our country and that makes it a very sad time it affects our neighbors it affects our brothers our sisters or everybody it touches our great game of baseball here um as well and you know it, it can't be said enough um that black lives matter um i know for whatever reason that's treated as a political statement it, it's not at all black lives matter they are, they are have they have always mattered um, but we need to say it loud and clear so that everybody hears that and, and understands that uh, to their core. Um, you know, that's resulted in several protests around the country. And I, I know it's, some of them have gotten violent. A lot of them have been very peaceful with people trying to get people to understand in our systems and our governments to understand um, just how much Black Lives Matter and just how much this level of brutality and racism has gotten 
into our society and what the effects are and the effects are losses of life that can't come back. Um, it, it's, it's a very sad time and, uh, you know, I, I don't have answers. I, I know that there are a lot of really good organizations out there putting in the work, trying to get, you know, people who are protesting, putting up those good fights, bail funds, there's bail funds in almost every city right now, Minneapolis, bail funds filled up very quickly and they were telling people to go look elsewhere. Don't take my word for it. If you were thinking about giving to a Minneapolis bail fund, check it out first. Make sure they're still accepting donations. I know the ones here in Brooklyn are doing that. Um, You know, there's other ways to fight racism and injustice within the system, the NAACP, the ACLU. uh, Search out these resources. It's not enough to just stand up and say, you know, I'm not racist. It's important to be anti-racist and and change our thinking and do a a lot of listening and do a a lot of talking, too. Um, You know, that's that's something that we're trying to do more ourselves or maybe just myself. I I can only speak for myself, but... um, you know, we we can't just post about it. We can't just sit back and, and hope that it changes. You'll hear Nick Heath talk about this, about what needs to change and how that needs to happen. And if he even has hope that it can. And hopefully we can provide that hope. And, and that starts with talking to everyone. Um, you don't know what somebody believes. You don't know how they'll act until you talk to them. And, and they won't know how you feel either until you do the, have that same discussion from your point of view. Um, Keep your hearts open. Keep your minds open. Uh, the only way we change things is with empathy, um, listening to your fellow man, understanding your fellow man, knowing that they matter. And, uh, you know, this is a minor league baseball podcast. We're going to talk a lot about that. Um, but for being such a sport that is so touched by people from all walks of life, all different countries, all different parts of this country, um, you know, it's important that that we address this in some way and, and make sure you guys know at home uh, that we're listening, uh, we're talking at the same time, and we're, we're looking out for resources. We hope hope you are, too. I posted a few on, on my page. I, I know Tyler has done that as well. We'll hopefully continue to do that and hopefully get closer to a more just, a more equal uh, world for all of us starting you know, with the black community, understanding where they're coming from, understanding their fears and their their cries. And uh, yeah, hopefully hope is around around the, the corner, but we have to put in the work to do that. And there are plenty of resources out there to make that happen. So we are going to pivot to uh, just an unbelievably tremendous conversation that we had. Uh, we just hang up, hung up with him uh, a few minutes ago. Nick Heath, who is the 26th ranked prospect in the Kansas City Royals organization. Um, we'll talk with Nick about a lot. But uh, to the stick to sports crowd, you might want to skip this episode. And uh, to be honest, your time is sort of past. Uh, period, and I think has been for quite some time, but we're not going to do that on this episode, and we're not going to do that, period. Um, so I think that's a, an important thing to point out. This is uh, so much bigger than uh, everything that we generally discuss on something that seems in the face of all of this as insignificant as a podcast that talks about sports, um, and I'm so grateful that we have members of our baseball family like Nick Heath who we can hear from uh, in moments like this, and so uh, we will talk to Nick here in just a little bit, and we are going to talk a lot of baseball uh, coming up in a little while. We'll hear from Jared Kelnick and the Seattle Mariners organization. Uh, we'll talk with Benjamin Hill. 
We do talk a lot of baseball with Nick Heath. We get some great stories from the, the Dominican Winter League from last year when he was down there uh, being added to the 40-man roster in the Kansas City organization. There's some great stuff. If you're a Royals fan, you got a hell of a good one in Nick Heath who was uh, on the way and was just one step below Kansas City last year in Omaha. Uh, Mariners fans should be unbelievably excited about Jared Kelenic uh, and, and Julio Rodriguez and all the other guys who are coming up in that system. And We'll hear from Jared here in a little while as well and uh, our usual good stuff from Benjamin Hill coming up after those guys. But uh, we will uh, cede the floor to a, a great conversation that we had with Nick Heath, the 26th-ranked prospect in the Kansas City Royals organization right now. Ordinarily, we, uh, over the last few weeks, have been talking with players about where they are right now in terms of staying ready for, for a season and uh, coming off of an offseason and training and getting at bats, trying to look at live pitching or work with a, a catcher somewhere. And uh, there are very obviously so much bigger things going on right now. And with that, we wanted to bring on uh, somebody who is speaking with a, a very powerful voice in the world of minor league baseball right now. And uh, from the Kansas City Royals organization, uh, Nick Heath joins us, who is still in Arizona after uh, – spring training was was popped a couple of months ago and uh right now in a, a very different world than what things felt like at the the beginning of spring training and nick first off man we can't thank you enough for uh, for giving us some time um the last week has been unbelievably difficult for us uh and we are two generic white guys who host a podcast about minor league baseball um for you as a as an athlete and uh and as an african-american ball player right now in this world in this climate what have the last week or 10 days or so been like for you uh realistically it's been pretty stressful um a little disheartening uh, i'm a very i try to i try to tell people i'm a very positive person so i try to keep that up um i try to keep that outlook on life as often as i can but um trying to kind of juggle being an athlete and trying to juggle using my voice the right way is this that's what's stressing me out you know i want to go out i want to protest i want to be active i want to let people know what they can do to help uh if people are doing things that are harmful but I want to be able to do it in a positive light. I want to say something to somebody and them not take it as, you know, me trying to attack them and me trying to come at them. I want them to understand, like, I mean it from a place of love because I love, I mean, I love everybody. I love my teammates all the same. I call them family on and off the field. Um, and I think a lot of them could attest to that. If they needed anything from me, that I'd be the first person to do everything I could to help them out. But um, it's stressful trying to go out there and be active and, and, and say my opinion and say what's right and wrong, but at the same time, as an athlete, I have a brand to uphold, I have a team to represent, I have a sport to represent, so I'm trying to I'm trying to juggle all the right ways to do it, but also, you know, put my truth out there and put my experiences out there so people can understand that, you know, like, just because I play baseball or just because I'm, you know, I'm a little bit different than the average, you know, the average bear and, and my my ability has gotten me to a certain point in my life that you know, it, it still affects me. I, I still leave the house, and sometimes I'm concerned. Or my teammates leave the house, or my friends leave the house, and I'm like, hey, man, be safe. Call me when you get there. Call me when you get back. Call me if you need help. So uh, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to juggle doing the right thing, saying the right thing, but at the same time, you know, maintaining, you know, an image because not only am I representing myself, I'm representing my teammates and the Royals and baseball. So... I'm trying to figure out how to do it all the right way. That's, I think you you hit the nail on the head with uh, how difficult of a line it is right now for people to walk with a, a voice, and um, you know, and that's speaking as. 
uh, as people who, you know, really in this circumstance on this subject, uh, I don't feel like our voices are the important ones in any context. And for you guys right now being, you know, I know you, you quote tweeted something from Shed Long uh, in the Mariners organization talking about how he has always talked about how he wanted a son. And right now, imagining mm-hmm. what it's like to be the parent of a son, uh, he said, I, I see why my mom is always checking up on me because it's such a different world uh, to be a parent and see a kid and try to raise a kid uh, in a world like this. To try to uh, be be someone who has before we started recording, you said, you know, the platform that you do have, you want to use it for good and for for positive purposes. How difficult is that right now to uh, to kind of, you know, figure out your own voice in a circumstance like this? And where does that come from in you? I mean, with your family or with the, the people that you were uh, raised with, friends and, and kids you went to school with or whatever, where does that come in you to want to be somebody who speaks up? Well, I just I think previously in my life, you know, I've kind of always been, I wouldn't say an underdog, but I've kind of always been like overlooked just a little bit. You know, like I'm not, a, I'm not a high draft pick. I didn't come from a big school. Like I wasn't getting drafted out of high school. I didn't even think I was going to play college baseball to be perfectly honest with you. But like now that I had the opportunity to say something and I know I have a little bit of reach, it might not be, it might not be the Whit Merrifields of the world. It might not be the, <laughs> the Colin Kaepernick's and, and so on and so forth. You know what I mean? But I want to I want to use the reach that I do have, and I want to try to use it for good, because I feel like if somebody is, if somebody is gonna speak about me, if somebody's gonna say, "Look what this guy said," I want it to be positive. I want them to look at my Twitter, look at my Instagram, and go, "Well, he's trying to be proactive, but he's trying to do it in a way that he's not offending anybody." And I want to I don't want to come off as rude because I don't want people to think, "Oh, the Royals are picking up players that don't care what anybody thinks." You know what I mean? So, like I said earlier, me trying to juggle that the organization that I represent and, and the uniform that I put on, I want to represent it the right way. But at the same time, man, I I can only take so much of, I can only take so much of, you know, what's going on in the world. And I can only sit by and be silent for so long because as bad as it was, if that happened to Mr. Floyd, realistically, that could have been me. You know what I mean? I could be at a grocery store and I could not know I have a counterfeit $20 bill on me and I could use it. And next thing I know I'm in that situation or, Hell, I do a, a a rolling stop at a stop sign and I get pulled over and next thing you know, I've got a, you know what I'm saying? I got a knee on my neck or, or anything can happen and it can happen to anybody. So that's where it comes from in me is that it's somebody that looks like me that got hurt. You know what I mean? And it's, and it's reoccurring. It's over and over. And we change for a little bit and we address it for a week, a month, a couple months and then fade to black. And then boom, it happens again and we're doing the same thing. So like, I'm trying to be more proactive about it now because I don't want it to happen again. And I don't want to look back and see like Rudy Martin being my teammate, Khalil Lee, DJ Burt. It would break my heart if I came in and got the news one day that something like this happened to one of them. You know what I mean? So I want to do everything I can to be able to spread a positive message, but to let people know like there are things we can do as a people to help. There are things we can do as a people to progress forward. So I'm trying to use my platform for good. I, like I said, I don't have the biggest one, but the only thing I want to do is help. 
and, and not only just with the public, with you know your fourteen thousand plus Instagram followers and thousands of uh, Twitter followers, but just within the Royals organization or within the baseball family writ large. Um, you know, what exactly. kind of conversations have you had, and how are guys sharing <laughs> personal stories right now uh, amongst themselves to make sure everybody's learning about what's going on? You know, within that baseball family. Uh, so the reason we had to push this call back an hour was because I was talking to a few other players on a Zoom call just about just about what was going on. And it was mostly African American players and I'll be perfectly honest with you, I have no problem I have no problem reaching out and just having a conversation with them because I can't come to the park every day and voice my opinion. You know what I mean? I can't come to the park every day and protest or or, or say what's going on in the world is wrong or right. And the only reason I say that is because I watched Colin Kaepernick try to do the same thing peacefully, and he got ran out of football. You know what I mean? And I, I want to be able to—I want to be able to speak on it. I want to be able to go out and say what I need to say, what I have to say, so people understand. But at the same time, like this is my job security. So I know I can reach out to other players in our organization and listen to what they have to say, and know that they can say it in a safe space without feeling like they would be let go or feeling like they'd be judged or criticized. Um, I've had quite a few teammates that are white men that reach out and and they ask me like what can we do to help? I help me better understand why this happens or help me better understand what I can do here in this situation. And that warms my heart because realistically I didn't think some of these guys were those type of people and now that I'm a teammate, I'm a friend, I'm a brother, like they're reaching out to me and they're checking up on me. Matheny called me earlier, reached out to me and checked up on me and just and like that warms my heart, you know what I mean? Those guys care about us, but at the same time, I want to make this known to everybody in our organization that I'm not the only person dealing with this. And people out in the street aren't the only ones dealing with this. You got to come back in here and you got to you got to support us, you know what I mean? Cuz if the same thing were to happen to one of them, then I would be I know for a fact that I would be out there alongside them fighting for whatever cause they were fighting for. Yeah, and and one thing I I think that it gets thrown around a lot. The conversations are great to start, but one thing a lot of people say is we're going to put in the work, but what does that work look like? Um, in terms of what baseball, what the country, what the world needs to do at large, what do you think involve, that work involves? Like, what what are the next steps we need to make to make the, sure that this is a country that is, uh, you know, anti-racist, not just not racist, but uh, anti-racist and everybody feels equal on, on the, the same plane? I think first and foremost, we have to put ourselves and put other people in an environment where their opinions, their thoughts, their thought processes, whatever you may have, isn't going to be judged by the masses. Does that make sense? Like, Yeah, yeah of course. If somebody, feel, if, if somebody feels some type of way, if somebody comes up and tells me, you know what, man, for the longest, I've had a, I've had a problem in my heart with African-American people. And cool, like, you can voice that opinion to me. I, I'm not saying you can voice it to everybody, but you can voice that opinion to me. I, I might be a little upset. I might be a little hurt, but I'll at least talk to you about why. Like, what happened in your life that makes you feel this way? Who taught you this? Do you want to change? Are you, up, are you up for change? Like, how can I help you? How can I help that go away? You know what I mean? Because <clears throat> I feel like a lot of people feel a certain type of way, and they can't go out there and express that for fears of them looking a certain way. But I think you should be able to listen to somebody's opinion and somebody's standpoint without judging them or being upset with them. But like, you got to help people overcome that. So we got to come together. You know what I mean? And my teammates are, 
Uh, we went to a protest the other night. It was a peaceful one. There was only like 30 people, but we sat down and we spoke to random people. They didn't know who we were. We didn't know who they were, but we sat down and spoke. People asked what they could do to help. <clears throat> um, I know I have a list of like links and things you can donate to, petitions you can sign. I'm telling people, you know, you can go vote in this state, this state, and this state, and giving them dates for stuff like that so they can go out there. You can make a change. You just got to be willing to go make it. You got to go out there and look for it. And I think a lot of what happened previously is people saying they want to change, but them not necessarily knowing how to or knowing where to go or how to go about it. So I think my big thing is just giving people the opportunity to say what's on their mind and say what they're thinking, but not judging them in the process. Because if you feel a certain way about something and you speak on it and you get judged for it, how often are you going to speak on that subject again? Because you got judged the last time. And I'm a, I'm a very understanding person. I'm a very open-minded person. I listen. I do my best to, to do that. So if, if there's something that I, being an African-American male, can help you understand or can help you with or can help change, then I want to do that because I want people to look back and say, when they were going through this time right here as a people, they still accepted us into, like, coming in and helping out. They were still, like, they were still mild-mannered. They still listened. They were still open to, you know, what we had to say and things we thought we could do. But, like, they helped us. They explained it to us. They helped us understand. So I think you got to do that as a person if you want to get somewhere. <clears throat> Nick, let me ask you this question. This is, uh, you know, we're three guys who uh, I'm the elder statesman of this group. I'm 34. Sam's uh, 30-ish, 29-ish? 30. Yeah, 30. Uh, Nick, you're <laughs> Nick, you're 26, although uh, you look very good for a 71-year-old British man. We'll get to that here in a little bit. Um, but when you, when you look at the way things are right now, one of my earliest memories, um, you know, as a, as a kid um, – in, in realizing how volatile the world can be because of the way certain classes of people are subjugated is the, the Rodney King beating and the L.A. riots. Um, mm-hmm. That was when I was, I think, six or seven years old. Um, but from there, you know, it's we're 25 years after that. Uh, and, you know, we go through Trayvon Martin and now we go through the George Floyd case. The, the situations that that pop up and we have unrest too often uh, and by too often I mean basically 100% of the time at least it feels like in my lifetime they don't lead to tangible change this and I'm just speaking for myself this to me um, you know sitting in a a city I'm in Denver and we've had uh, protests that have been you know at times violent and the last few nights very peaceful and very productive this feels different because it is so widespread it's it's been in so many cities uh, it's been in small towns I saw a tweet that you retweeted today that there have been protests in 50 different states and in 18 different countries um does it feel to you like maybe this is a moment maybe we come out of this and things are different and we and we can take a step forward i'm, I'm interested to hear your point of view on that um i i think it's different but if you want me to if you want me to be real with you if you want me to give you my heart i don't think it's going to change anything uh, i i I love the fact that it's I love the fact that it's widespread. I love the fact that other countries are joining us uh, when we are trying to convey this message. <clears throat> but I still I realistically deep down I think it's going to blow over after a while and it's going to be the same thing until it happens again. You know what I mean? You're telling me this was 20 plus years ago and we're still dealing with the same thing and LA went absolutely crazy. I, yeah. I can 
So I can find it on YouTube and find a whole video of it, just how LA looked. And you're seeing you're seeing that happen today all across the country. But it's 20 years ago, and we're still dealing with the same thing 20 years later. You know what I mean? So even though it's a little more widespread and it's a little more, and people are people are paying more attention to it. What can the outside world do to help us? Does that make sense? Like, yeah, because because London is is peacefully protesting with us. They can't they can't vote to get new people in office to make sure right. that you know there are better laws or better you know what I mean things going into place to help us out. We people across the world can't do anything. They can voice their opinions. They can spread the message and they can spread love, but it doesn't necessarily change what can happen. So. Forgive me, and I, I really do ask forgiveness for this, but you, you got to understand that sometimes just because I see that little glimmer of hope doesn't mean I necessarily believe in it. Right. And it sounds wrong. It sounds wrong to say, but, like, I, I want to see change. I don't want to just hear about it. I want to see something happen. I want I want to know that I can be okay leaving my house, or that my little sister can be okay leaving the house, or or my mom or my dad. You know what I mean? My family can leave the house and not have to worry about stuff like that. So, I love it. I love the message. I love the positivity, but I also I'm angry with it because you guys witnessed it when you were kids, and I'm witnessing it as a young adult. That like nothing's changed. You know what I mean? So it's I love it. the The message is amazing, but I want to see the change behind the message. not don't just talk about it but be about it on a societal exactly, level exactly. um and, and you know and that's why we we wanted to get your point of view on it and uh and so many other things we're gonna um try to talk a little bit of baseball but there's a, a question about baseball that i think ties into all of this as well and we've heard for you know for so long about the the decline in numbers of african-american athletes in the major leagues from where it was at a high point in the 60s and 70s to where it is today um i think mm-hmm. a lot of good strides have been made uh in major league baseball trying to incorporate uh african-american communities more uh even-handedly into the game of baseball which has become so dominated by travel ball by things that cost a lot of money and make it inaccessible uh to a lot of athletes across the country from a baseball standpoint um what can the game of baseball do to get African-American kids not only interested in playing the game, but being fans, being involved, uh, you know, being in front offices, working as scouts, working as general, whatever it is. What do you, you know, for somebody who grew up and, and played college ball and was drafted not too long ago, what do you think are tangible things that baseball can do in that vein? I think, uh, I think what they can do is, you know, kids are like sponges. So, you know, you see something as a kid. I remember seeing a baseball game as a kid, and I was like, that's exactly what I want to do, and here I am. Or <laughs> other people being a kid and being like, oh, snap, I want to be a doctor. So they went out and they became a doctor. I think in order to get African-American kids, first and foremost, to want to play baseball, they have to see other African-American kids playing baseball. And then you have to put them in, in a position where – it's easily accessible for them to play baseball. You can go, they can go join a PBE football league and they can go play right. hoops at the rec for free. You know what I mean? They can go shoot hoops at the rec for free and they can go do plenty of other things for free. But when it comes to baseball, you're scamming kids into thousands of dollars and parents for them to go travel and then to go play in these showcase tournaments and all that. But like our demographic is a little bit different. I mean, the numbers say all of us can't afford that. You know what I mean? And, and I couldn't afford that as a kid. So I think you got to put these type of kids in situations where they can see they're able to do it, but you have to give them the outlet to do it. Like 
if a kid wants to be a scout, let him hang out with a let him hang out with a scout for a day, or give him like two days, and he can come hang out with the big league team. You know what I mean? If somebody wants to be a general manager in the front office, let him come at twelve years old and see what a general manager has to deal with for a day. You know what I mean? And then let him go out and watch the game and be a part of it. So that way, as a kid, you absorb all that. You know what I mean? At twelve years old, I could absorb all that. I could go out and like I just kicked it with Dayton Moore in a booth watching a Royals game after I was down in the locker room talking to Salvador Perez and Whit Merrifield. Like, you could you could do stuff like that. But I think me as an African-American player, I think it's just uplifting, one, other African-American players, and two, uplifting African-American kids when I see them playing baseball. You know what I mean? I know Kansas City has that youth academy. Uh, I went in there a few times, and I hit during the offseason uh, before I came out here to Arizona for uh, spring training. And I met like five or six kids and I talked to them on a regular basis. And I sent them messages like, hey, how's your work going? You staying in your books? Stuff like that. And I think I think you have to give those kids an outlet or an opportunity to see somebody that looks like them in a in the spot that they want to be in. Because then it gives them, oh, snap, he's there. If I work hard enough, I can be there. But you also have to, you kind of got to incentivize them a little bit. You know what I mean? You got to put something in front of them so they're like right there. They're paying attention to it because we all know how kids are. You pay attention to what's in front of you. Right. But you got to put it in their faces. You know what I mean? Yeah, come out to a game. We'll give you and your family free tickets. You know what I mean? Or we'll let you guys come out here and hang out with the team for a day. You get to take BP on the field or something like that. But, like, you got to give those kids something to want to look forward to. And you have to give those kids and you have to show them people like myself or other African-American players doing it because then they're going to understand that it's a goal that they can attain. <clears throat> One of the, the things you kind of touched on uh, a little earlier, you haven't had the easiest baseball road. It wasn't a, a cliche. You go to LSU, you're a first-round pick, and all of a sudden you're in the upper minors. Um, but you have had a very impressive uh, minor league career already, drafted uh, in 2016 out of Northwestern State in the 16th round. And the thing that I think when you look over the, the breadth of your career, the thing that's been most impressive is it seems like you get better every time you make a jump. When you go from the lower levels to the next step up, I know last year it's somewhat a limited sample size, but you get to Omaha in AAA in your third full pro season, uh, and you put up an 802 OPS, which is the best you've had at any level. What What is it about being able to make climbs during a season that you think you've been able to handle so well so far? Uh, I think that's the competitor in me, honestly. Uh, when I get to – I remember when I first got to high, high kicked my butt. I was hitting like 190 my first <laughs> half in high to finish the to finish the year. I came off an injury. Um, I came off an injury, went to Lexington for like three or four days, got injured again, and then instead of going back to Lexington, they sent me to high, and then I had like 190 or something like that. It was brutal. And then to start the next year, uh, I wasn't I wasn't even starting. I was like a fifth outfielder, and I was like, man, this this ain't this ain't this ain't going over well for me. Like I don't like this feeling. But the competitor in me knew that you know like I could go out there and play with those guys. I can go out there and compete alongside of them and make us a better team. I just need the opportunity to do so. And I don't recommend what I did for everybody because me personally, I knew I could go play. So I had a conversation with somebody in our organization and maybe I was a little out of line, but I kind of said like, you need to give me the opportunity because you, you kind of wasted my time. And like I said, I wouldn't tell any, I wouldn't tell people to go about it that way. But I just knew the heart and the passion that I had. And about a week later, I was in the lineup, 
and then I was in the lineup again and again and again and again, and then I started playing pretty well, and I didn't come out, and then I made the jump to double A, and the only thing I ever think when I go up to the next level is I got to show these boys I can play with them. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I don't want to be the... I don't want to be the new guy in the locker room and everybody's like, what is this kid doing here? You know what I mean? I want them to be like, oh, damn, why was he not here a month ago? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, To be fair, I think that's I what to... everybody who tunes into this podcast thinks about me. What is this guy doing here? I think that's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very familiar with that feeling. <laughs> oh man, no! I want no. I just want people to. I want people to understand that you know, like I, I, I mean business. I'm about my baseball. I, I want to succeed, and I, I want to leave. I want to leave a legacy behind that says like he was a good teammate. He came out here. He played hard. He gave it everything he had. But like he also showed us that he was competing because. I'm gonna go out there and try to kick your ass as often as possible. It might not work out every time, but I want to. I want to go do that. And and each level I go up. I, every day I tell myself, you better show these boys you came to play. Like you better show these fools that you can play alongside them. If not, you can play over them. And it's not like a, it's not like I'm trying to disrespect my teammates, but like that's my mindset that gets me in the zone, that gets me fired up, and that gets me locked in on what I need to be locked in on. So, um, I'll attest uh, the progression over the years to just that competitive nature and wanting guys to like feel my presence when I'm in a locker room or when I'm in a lineup. And speaking of that competitive nature, all of that buildup, trying to prove yourself at every level that you belong and, and that you're better than the guys around you, it culminates last year and you lead the minors in stolen bases. You get 60 stolen bases, 105 games between AA and AAA. Uh, one, what did it mean to you to lead the, the entire minor leagues in a, in a category like that? And two, how much were you following along, knowing that that was a possibility as the season went along, even after you jumped up to Omaha? Um, what it, what it meant for me was that like, I I was doing something that like I had set out to accomplish. Um, I know a ton of guys don't really steal bases anymore. Um, and I know, but that's a part of, you know, the DNA in the world's organization. You got to run your bases. You got to play good defense. You know what I mean? So for me, it was an amazing accomplishment because that's what I've been setting out to do for so long. You know what I mean? I want to lead our organization in stolen bases every year. I don't want nobody to be close. I want them to look at that stolen base category at the end of the year and go, damn, we got to find a way to get this kid in the lineup. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, so Khalil was in second place in the minors with like 50, 54, 53, somewhere in there. And for most of the year, me and him were one and two or we like one and three. So I knew, like, him being behind me that we were going to be able to take off and get two bags easy. And it was just, I don't know, it just became a part of who I was. Um, I'm knowing that that's what's going to keep me in a lineup one day, that and my defense. And my battle come along when it comes along, you know. We all struggle at the plate sometimes. We all do amazing at the plate sometimes. But I know that each and every day that when I get on base, I can I can do something. I can I can, I can force the issue somewhere. And that's all I want to do, you know what I mean? I want to wreak a little bit of havoc. But – Man, that that's it, it's awesome. I'm I finally had a healthy season. Um, and how often do I pay attention to it? Every single day, every single nice. day. <laughs> I don't want nobody even close. I remember at the beginning of the year, this kid, this kid was ahead of me by like five. I was like, nah, I got to close that gap and separate myself. <laughs> but I know it. But oddly enough, a lot of the guys that were toward the top, a lot of the guys that like I was competing with to end up having more bases in, I knew them personally. So uh, my friend Dean from the Braves, 
he sent me like he would send me messages sometimes. He'd be like, "How many you got?" And I'd be like, "I got 30. How many you got?" He'd be like, "Dang, I got 23." And I'd be like, "Uh huh, I'm about to take <laughs> off, man. You better catch up." So like, a lot of it is like, a lot of it is is on personal goal, but at the same time, you know, like, I love the guys I get to play with, I love the guys I get to play against. So like, hey man, it's kind of a competition, you know what I mean? And sometimes we will put a little wager on it and be like, hey, if you get two bags today, I'll buy you dinner tonight after the game, or I'll buy you lunch tomorrow. Like, I'll Venmo you 20 bucks or something like that. So a lot of it is just, like, it's playful, it's fun, but at the same time, we all know, like, it's our careers, but we can still have a good time doing it, and we can still, like, kind of give each other a little crap along the way and uh, say, you know, I'm a little better than you here in this category. And, you know, when you lead the minors in a category, you're going to stand out. But not only that, you get rewarded uh, last November when the Royals added you to the 40-man roster uh, for the first time, protecting you from the Rule 5 draft. Uh, just take us through what that meant to you and also how that kind of changes your career. You don't have to worry about a non-roster invite to spring training. You're automatically in big league camp. Um, you know, there's so much talk now about minor league pay, and the Royals have extended that through the rest of the summer. But you know, pays a little bit different when you're on the 40 man roster. Just what was that moment like? And what did that mean for you to be added to the 40 man? Uh, well, uh, JJ, uh, Piccolo called me and he was the one who told me and I was trying my best that we were having a team meeting. Cause I was down in Dominican at the time. We were having a team meeting, uh, when they were making the announcements. So I like had my phone out. All, <laughs> I had my phone out brightness low and I'm sitting behind a kid in front of me, like trying to pay attention in this meeting, but at the same time, see if I got put on the roster. So, um, he calls me and I look at my manager, uh, down for my, my team in Lise and I kind of like look at him and I just point to my phone and he like nods me out. So I go out there and I answer the phone and he's like, Hey man, we just want to tell you, we put on, putting you on the 40 man roster. And man, I was trying to hold it together on the phone for so long because and then now that I think about it, like the journey I had, the journey I took to get here, not thinking I was going to play college ball, being told, you know, like I'm barely good enough to play high school ball. And I grew up and I was always around kids who were better at baseball than I was. And I was always like, man, like how in the world am I about to succeed in this? And these guys are so good and these guys aren't getting the opportunity. So like I look back on it and then I, I call my mom like 10 minutes later and I'm like bawling on the phone. I'm like, mom. I cannot believe this is going on. Like, this is actually happening. Like, stuff we talked about forever ago, stuff we said we dreamed about forever ago is, like, actually unfolding right here in front of us. And, like, it's just a – it's just a, a tribute to all the work that we put in and, you know, constantly, like, reminding ourselves that we're able to do it and we're able to be somewhere. So it was an amazing feeling, man. And I, I got so many phone calls and messages afterwards and people from back home just saying congratulations and they knew that I could do it, and, you know, that I never should have doubted myself, but man, I, it was it was an amazing feeling. And talking about minor leaguers not being paid, um, <clears throat> as unfortunate as it is that that happened in some organizations, man, I just like I man, I count my blessings because I could have been in that exact same situation. And the organization, you know, confided in me enough, they trusted and believed in me enough to know that like they think I can help at the big league level at some point. So. Um, it's definitely a pat on the back. It makes me feel good. Uh, it makes me go out there and, you know, it makes me want to push a little harder to show the organization that, you know, they made the right decision. Nick, uh, one thing that I have wanted to ask you about since we, uh, since I knew you were coming on the show is uh, last fall, you get a chance to go down and play with one of the most legendary teams in all of Caribbean baseball in the Tigres del Lice uh, in the Dominican Winter League. And I remember, I think it was the one of the first couple days of the season, 
Um, you tweeted, it's the first time I've ever not been able to hear my teammates yelling at me from 20 feet away and talked about how electric the atmosphere of winter ball in the DR was. What was that like, especially the first time you go out there and you experience that as a player on a field? Uh, for so many of us, I've never been to a Dominican Winter League game. Uh, I know probably most of our listeners have never been to one. What is it like not only being at a game, but being on a field or in a dugout uh, on one of those rosters? What was that experience like? Uh, I'll be honest when I say at first I was a little skeptical about it. Um, I just, I'm being away from home. I don't know anybody down there. I've never been there. So I'm, I'm kind of like, well, how do I navigate this, this new opportunity? And I think the closer I got, the more I was just like, you know what, going to it, you know, going to it with open arms and whatever happens, happens. If you enjoy it, you enjoy it. If you don't, at least you can say like you tried it and you experienced it. And man, I got down there, had the time of my life. I don't know, the first couple of days, my teammates, none of my teammates spoke to me in English. None of them. I'd seen <laughs> some of them. I'd seen some of them previously, like, played against them, played with them previously. <clears throat> and I'm like, I know you speak English, man. Like, help me. Please help me out. <laughs> and every single one of them, man, the whole team was just speaking in Spanish. And I'm like, of course, I'm the only black dude down there. So at the time I was, some of the pictures showed up later, like James Jones showed up later. But at the time, I was the only black dude down there, and I'm and everybody's speaking to me in Spanish, thinking that I'm a Dominican player, and I'm like, dog, I don't know what y'all <laughs> saying. Like, somebody please help me. I'm looking at the roster, I'm looking at the lineup and everything, and the first couple of days it was in Spanish, and I'm like, man, <laughs> y'all gotta be joking. So I'm just following groups of people. I don't even know who they are, but eventually, one of those guys, one of those guys, cut the act after like day three. <laughs> and was like, hey, man, we all know English. we just been messing with you. And I'm like, y'all, y'all tripping, man. Like, this is not fun. <laughs> that, was so that was your initiation. <laughs> that was my initiation, yeah. Figure out as much Spanish as I could in three days. Otherwise, you're not going to eat. Man, I'm like, what in the world is going on? But, uh, man, eventually I, eventually I really, really developed a good relationship with a lot of those guys. And, and I can say that the way they care about the game of baseball is way different than the way I care about the game of baseball. And like, don't get me wrong when I say that because I love it. I'm passionate about it. This is, this is everything to me, but going down there and seeing how they play and the way they play and like how passionate they are about it. I'm like, man, somebody out there in the world cares about baseball a hell of a lot more than I do. And I'm not saying it, like I said, I'm not saying it in a bad way because I would be devastated if I couldn't play anymore. But these guys are like, this is it. You know what I mean? Like this is this is it. This is the way out. This is the way off the island. This is the way to like brighter days, better days, and better like situations and places to live and taking care of your family. So it hits a little bit different for them. And and I think the fans know that and the fans feel that over there. You know what I'm saying? I was saying that I couldn't hear myself and the stadium was like two thirds of the way packed. It wasn't even a sold out game. This is like first week of the season. With first uh First pitch, there's probably like three, four hundred people there, and by the sixth inning, the place is like ten thousand. And you're like, where in the world did all y'all people come from? <laughs> first inning and the sixth inning, and at first people were just showing up like late game, like second half of the game. But then like the closer we started getting to the playoffs, when we go play like the Aguilas, which is the biggest rivalry in sports. I don't care what anybody says. Being at those games is unbelievable. You can't hear yourself thinking in a batter's box, let alone communicating with an outfielder. So. I just I go down there and I'm experiencing all these different games and environments and I'm like, man, y'all take y'all baseball serious. And I think it's definitely helped me gain a little more appreciation for the game because 
there are guys here in the States who had easier routes to get the baseball than I did. And then there's me having an easier route to get the baseball than the Latin players that I played with down in the DR. So I think it definitely helped me with my appreciation of the game and looking at my Latin teammates a little bit different. You know what I mean? Like I understand why they're so passionate about it. I understand why that's all they got. I understand why they live and breathe it because it's all they have down there. So it gave me, you know, the best of both worlds. I got to come from home and see that. And then I got to go from there and come back and see what it's like at home. And I appreciate it all. Nick, a couple more for you, and we're going to get you out of here. Um, but uh, we, we've obviously kept you way too much time because we're having so much fun talking with you. But we a couple more uh, fun ones for you. You grew up in Junction City, Kansas, which is just southwest of Manhattan, Kansas, and your mom ran track at K-State. Did you grow up a Royals fan? Okay, so a lot of people don't know this because I kind of just haven't necessarily put an end to it. But I actually grew up in Georgia. Uh, I actually grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I stayed there for a little bit, and then we moved to Kansas. So I was, I'm was i a big Braves fan. I've always been a Braves fan, but obviously I tell people now that I'm a Royals I have to be. Uh, I'm a Royals fan. <laughs> oh, life. <laughs> Lifelong Royals fan, Nick Heath. Don't, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. I love the organization, but, you know, you, your sports team is your sports team, and you kind of, like, commit to them at an early age like I did. I'm a Falcons fan. I'm a Hawks fan. Anything Atlanta sports-related, I'm all in on. So um, <laughs> people do ask me if I was a Royals fan. I had I had no clue who the Royals even were until I got to Kansas. And then I was like, man, I'm not about to root for this team, man. I'm a, I'm a Braves fan, and the Braves were just – and the Braves were pretty dominant at the time. And I was like, oh, yeah, man, I'm a Braves fan for sure. And then I get drafted by the Royals, and I'm like, you know what? It's a blessing. I'm two hours away from, you know, where I went to high school. Uh, I'm a couple hours away from – not a couple hours. I'm 30 minutes away from my sister. She went to school at KU. So um, it's it's nice to know that, like, I'm close to – it's nice to know that I'm close to a group of people that I know that I can trust. And I know that I'm always going to have some type of support at every game. So um, it's definitely a blessing. It's definitely fun. But I was definitely a Braves fan coming up. And kind of along those lines then, as somebody who grew at least grew up close by, and now, as we talked about, you're on the 40-man. The majors isn't that far. Rosters are supposed to be expanded this year. If and when baseball comes back as a guy on the 40-man, you'll probably be as close as you've ever been uh, to the majors. When you – kind of close your eyes and envision what that first major league at bat will be, whether it's at Kaufman, whether it's at, you know, on the road, what have you, what do you envision your first major league at bat to be like? I'm going to hit a homer. I have to dead center. Man. <laughs> Good. Good. No, honestly, honestly, I don't hit, I don't hit a lot of homers. So I'm, I'm, the homers out of the homers out of the equation. If it happens, it happens, but, when it uh, happens, man, honestly, you know that we're going to cut out that quote and it's going to go viral. When you go yard dead center, first at bat, we're going to post this and it's going to be you like, oh, to. Nick Heath is also a prophet. <laughs> and realistically, <laughs> uh, I think I've always envisioned my first at bat being a triple. I don't know why. I don't know where it Ooh. came from, but I was like, my first big league AB is going to be a triple. I'm going to hit in the gap. I'm going to let it fly. And they're going to be like, all right, you got you to gotta treat this kid a little different. Um, but I also, at the same time, I was like, man, what if my first AB was just some little bloop single and I stole second and third? I, I, I don't know. I have so many different scenarios go through my head about what it's going to be like. But no matter what it's like, no matter what happens, I'm going to be thankful for the opportunity. I'll be thankful that, you know, they gave me the chance to be there and they trusted me enough to go out there and take the field with them. And I want to make the most of it.
And uh, well, the, the important thing to point out of that is that you're giving yourself options and all of them are successful, which that is, is true. Um, but <laughs> even to jump further back, uh, Tyler brought up before you were a 16th round pick uh, coming out of college. The 16th round isn't even going to exist this year. The Major League Baseball is going to be truncated to five rounds. Um, as somebody who's going to be a mid-round pick or potentially an undrafted free agent this year who might have been you know, a, a 10 to 20th round pick, what kind of advice do you give them about starting their career, You know, not being a top pick, but still working their way up through the upper minors and right on the cusp of the majors? In my opinion, where you, where you were picked, doesn't have anything to do with the type of baseball player you're going to be further on down the road. Um, I understand. I understand the politics of it. I I really do. And it was like that when I was in college, it was like that when I was in high school and so on and so forth. There's always politics in it. Who knows who and yada, yada, yada. But I don't think I ever let what round I was drafted in get in my way because I knew deep down that all I had to do was put in a little bit of extra work and throughout the years, it's going to show. It might not show today, you might you might beat me today, you might beat me in a month, but next year when we come back here for spring training, I bet you won't. You know what I mean? Or maybe you did, maybe you beat me again this year, but the year after that, because of the extra work that I put in, I'm, I'm going to catch up. And when I catch up, I'm going to pass you. And after I pass you, I ain't no looking back. So I, I think people should realize that the round doesn't determine what type of player you are or what type of player you're going to be. How much money you make in the draft doesn't determine anything. It's all a matter of how much you want it, how much work you're willing to put in, and how often you're willing to listen when you need help and understanding that like people aren't out to people aren't out to take your career away from you they're just out to help you so you got to listen to your coaches you got to listen to your teammates from time to time and sometimes you got to tell everybody to shut up and go back to and go back to what you know best so um i think guys should i think guys should always 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 bet on themselves that you should always bet on yourself because you don't never know what type of stuff you're going to pull out the hat one day after all your work is said and done you know what i mean so some days i show up to the park and maybe i don't got it but i'm still putting in my extra work but eventually it's going to catch up and i'm telling you man some days i show up to the park and i'm like i don't even know how the hell i just did that but i did and i'm attested to what i did in the cages earlier today so (laughs) you I think, guys, that you should always, always, always go into it with a positive mindset. Maybe you weren't drafted and maybe you're going to be a free agent. But guess what? Somebody picked you up and gave you the opportunity, so you better make the most of it. And I think guys kind of get lost behind that. I was picked as a 16th rounder. I was picked as a 10th rounder. Man, I should have went in the 8th or the 5th or the 6th, wherever you may have. Man, just be thankful. Just be thankful you're there because a lot of guys ain't there. And, and especially with this happening – and God forbid another one of these happens and you got to lose more players. And I know there were some guys who were going to be some amazing baseball players further down the road and some guys who are amazing baseball players now who just got let go. And in my opinion, I don't think they should have. So I don't think the round matters. I think it matters how much work you put in and how often you tell yourself positive things. you gotta, you got to manifest that stuff into existence. <laughs> and speaking of manifesting things into existence and your long road, we'll end with this one, which is what we end all our interviews with minor leaguers now. Um, you know, since your career began uh, all that time ago uh, in 2016, you've played at a lot of different levels, Idaho Falls, Wilmington, Northwest Arkansas, Omaha that we've mentioned. But out of everywhere you've played, what has been your favorite minor league memory? My favorite minor league memory. That's a really, really good question. I would say 
I can't say memory, but I will say memories is each time I get called up because sometimes sometimes I'll leave the park and I'm like, man, I'm doing I'm doing it. Like I'm doing well. I'm doing good enough. I, I know I can go up there and compete. When's it gonna happen for me? Like, am I gonna go up there? Is it gonna be the end of the road? Do like I fizzle out in double A? Do I fizzle out in triple A? And then and then I get the call, I'm going to high. I get the call, I'm going to double A. I get the call, I'm going to triple A. And each time, man, I just stop. And I reflect on the year, the couple seasons before and the journey and just, man, I, I'm i so thankful. I am so, so thankful that I get the opportunity to come out here and do what I love each day. So I'm not going to say that I have a favorite memory, but getting called up each time, it kind of just instills that in me that, look, man, you're this close. You got to push a little bit harder be a little more solidified in your work and like, and, and just trust it and trust that like your ability is going to get you there. Your ability is going to keep you there, but you got to keep doing the work. So I think, yeah, my favorite memory is, is each level, like each time I get called to say that I'm going to the next level. So I've got maybe four or five of those memories just locked in. <clears throat> Nick, this has been pretty amazing, man. Uh, you can find Nick on, uh, on Twitter and Instagram at in Heath we trust and give him a follow like I just did on both and uh, one thing that I do have to explain before we go if you if you google Nick Heath uh, they've got that little box on the right of the screen that comes up that gives you like the little short bio you know like the little thing that gives you a quick explainer of somebody um, I googled Nick Heath MILB to bring up his, his MLB.com player page and the, the description is Nick Heath is an English music producer, publisher, designer, and film producer. He is a son of British big band leader Ted Heath, born March 25th, 1949, in Wimbledon, in London, in the UK, age 71 years. But the picture attached to it is this very Nick Heath's Northwest Arkansas Naturals headshot, and it is the greatest juxtaposition. Like I said before we started recording, you look very good for a 71-year-old British music producer. Hey, listen, man, I play ball by day and I produce music by night, so you don't never know what I'm about to <laughs> Nick, this has been so awesome, man. We cannot thank you enough for uh, for all the time and uh, keep fighting the good fights, and we'll, we'll see you in, uh, in Kansas City or wherever else before too long, man. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you so much for having me. And before I go, I do want to say one thing. I just want to tell people out there, man, love the person next to you and remind the person next to you that they're loved. You never know what people are going through. You never know what people are dealing with, and... and it costs zero dollars to let somebody know that they're still important, that they're loved, and that and that they can do something in the world. So go out there and just spread positivity, especially in a time like this. Nick, from the bottom of our hearts, man, thank you for everything today. No, thank you guys for having me. It's, uh, it's been a pleasure, and whenever you need me to come on again, I'd love to. We are headed to the Seattle Mariners system this week, and uh, one of our five nationwide Road to the Show ambassadors, who just also so happens to be a top Mariners prospect and the number 11 overall prospect in baseball, outfielder Jared Kellenick, who joins the show. And, uh, Jared, it's, it's good to talk to you. Obviously, we'd be, uh, just like you, I would imagine, much more excited to be talking if you were in uh, Arkansas or Tacoma or Seattle right now. But uh, a weird time. How you been doing the last couple of months? Uh, you know, I've been really good. Um you know, it's nice when <clears throat> you come back home and your dad has actually, like, built a couple of facilities for you to use. Um, like, I have a huge gym that I work out at, and I've been working out at the entire time I've been home. And then I also have another hitting facility that I work out and hit and stuff like that at. So it's been 
it's been just like the normal off season, so I've kind of just uh, had the same approach. Just sort of an extended off season at this point, right? And when you get a, a chance, I mean, especially you know working out in uh, in facilities that are kind of your own, um, how how difficult is it right now to mentally stay engaged? I mean, going through and doing your workouts and, and being prepared and all that um, is such a necessity, knowing that we may get baseball back hopefully sometime soon. But has there been a moment where you know it's it's easier, obviously, to sit around and you know watch Netflix or play the show or do something? I mean, how do you keep yourself locked in mentally right now when things are so weird? Um, I, I think you just try to break it up day by day. Um, there, there's definitely times where, you know, we've been, I've been in the weight room now for the last like three months straight on top of my, you know, three, four months off season already. <clears throat> um, but I guess for me, I just try to break it up day by day and, um, really hone in on my workouts and, you know, maybe the, the, um, uh, it's not as long of a workout, but my, my reps are, um, I'm, I'm 110% on every single rep, making sure that I get really good quality work instead of, a, you know, a lot more quantity of them. So it takes a, long, a little bit longer of time. So for me, it's just kind of maybe shortening it up, but really paying attention to detail on those reps. So you've been in the weight room like seven straight months. Are you going to look like the rock when the season starts finally? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm, yeah. I uh I'm I feel r- really strong now. I feel like the strongest I've ever been. Um so it'll be interesting to see here, you know, what happens if we're going to play. Yeah, and and beyond strength, um you know, you finished up last year at, at AA Arkansas, um two steps away from the majors. It felt like the majors was potentially within reach. This year, I remember talking to you just after you were drafted a couple of years ago, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, you said you, your routines have always been the same. It, it, playing in an off season isn't that much different for you. But as you close in on the majors, what are you focusing on in your workouts in terms of finishing off your profile, trying to show Seattle whenever we do re- return that you are close to major league ready? I think the biggest thing is. Um, one thing that I'm actually doing here that's really helping me out is I'm facing a couple of big league pitchers um, once a week right now, which is kind of nice because you get those those big league reps, um, especially when even though they're indoors. Um, we just it's at the same facility that I like I hit at, but I think the the for me the really the deciding factor is understanding the pitchers and how, what they're trying to do and how they're trying to pitch me. I think that's something that I've gotten really good at and something that I kind of realized and paid attention to in spring training this year. And um, I think that that's going to be a huge jump for me going from the minor leagues to the big league level. And what's something you've noticed about how guys are attacking you, whether it's this spring or even now going against those big league guys? Well, Um, I think, I think it's, sorry to interrupt, but like, I think that it's definitely different. Um, with every guy, depending on how hard you throw or what pitches you're good at. Um, but I think what what makes a difference between, like, really good hitters and, um, you know, average hitters is that, like, you're able to pick up on what they're trying to do as quick as possible. So um, I think in, in the, like, low minor league levels and stuff like that, when a pitcher would miss a pitch and throw, like, a, a fastball up, he might have just completely missed and just totally like wasn't trying to do that. But in, at the big league level, 
everything that they're doing, there's a purpose behind and how they're throwing it and where they're throwing it. There's a, there's a reason behind it. And I think the sooner you pick that up of what they're trying to do and you can get on the same page as them, hitting is that much easier. And uh, so now let's pivot to the start of your road potentially to the show. Um, you, you were drafted a couple of years ago in the 2018 draft, but you had a unique path there. You became the first Wisconsin player taken in the top 10 uh, picks. We went six overall to the Mets, but to get there, you made a unique decision uh, deciding not to play high school ball. You end up playing for Rawlings hitters out of Caledonia uh, nearby you, and you end up graduating a semester early. Take us through all the decisions you made going up to the draft and how that helped solidify your place as a top 10 pick. Well, I think the first one to talk about is not playing high school baseball. Um, you know, high school baseball here in Wisconsin is a little bit different than anywhere else because of the weather, obviously. Um, so, and it, the competition wasn't going to challenge me in a in a um, in a spot that I was that I wanted to because I I wanted to be the top ten pick. And so, after talking like or numerous conversations with my family and stuff like that, like we decided that. My freshman year that I was just going to play um, with the hitters um, and they had a spring league that I was in and I was just going to play with them. Um, I would play with them in spring and then go right into summer ball and then right into fall ball basically the entire year with them. And that was going to push me and that was the talent that I needed to be around. Um, And then what was the other one again? Well, just the idea of, you know, going, playing travel ball and also you, you play for Team USA and, and those decisions right. and also oh, yeah. graduating, and graduating early. early. Yeah. Yeah. Gra- graduating early was something that I kind of, um, I actually heard about through like one of my sister's friends doing it um, because like they were going off to college or whatever. And I like didn't even know that was really a thing. And I remember my sophomore year, once I heard it, I set up a meeting with my, um, my advisor and I sat down and I told her um I like had to break down all the credits that I had and what I needed to get and I told her that um like I need you to just take care of my schedule so that I can graduate um after one semester my senior year she said like I can do that and all I ended up having to do was really taking one or two or two English classes my senior semester but the reason why I did that was because I wanted to, or because I was from Wisconsin that I didn't get, um, you know, I wasn't blessed with great weather and I couldn't get outside and stuff like that. And maybe some teams looked at it as like, you know, he's not, he hasn't gotten the refs. Like he has, he's just not as, um, you know, up to par as everybody else that was maybe in the South. I took that approach that if I were to graduate early and spend every single day leading up to the draft, getting ready for professional baseball that it was going to work and it was going to pay off. And then I could dedicate just all my time to that because that's what I wanted to do. And it worked out. Jared, let's talk about that USA baseball experience a little bit. You were on the the U18 World Cup roster that won the 2017 title uh, in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And that team, uh, you guys play nine games in that tournament. You go 9-0. and um, You're an integral part of the, the lineup. Obviously, the pitching staff put up a 0.35 ERA combined in nine games. I mean, that was one of the most dominant runs for USA baseball uh, in a very dominant era for USA baseball. What was that experience like? You're around – 
so many guys who end up going, you know, in the first round or, or high round picks, uh, both fellow position players. Obviously, uh, you know, Tristan Cassis is on that team. Bryce Turing's on that team. Michael Ciani. Um, but to to be on, in that group and be such a big part of that group and have the success that you guys had, what was that experience like for you? You know, that, that was the second year that I was with Team USA. Um, but I can tell you that both years on Team USA, playing around such special talent, such special guys, um, it was a it was a big, like, learning curve for me, and it was a big eye-opener um, in a positive way because you get to – you surround yourself with the best guys in the U.S., and you go to battle with each other, and you, you truly learn what it's like um, to play for – like things bigger than just baseball. Like when you wear USA across your chest, nobody truly understands what it means to have USA across your chest that you're playing for for everybody here in the United States. It's not just you and your teammates. It's the whole country that's like, that has your back. And so like that was something that um, kind of resonated with me. And I try to take into um, like, further in my career like when I went to um like when I was with the Mets like I did it there when I was now that I'm with the Mariners I'm trying to take it that you know like this year when I started in West Virginia like I was going to take that same mentality that I was playing for West Virginia um every single day and then when I got promoted to Modesto it was I'm playing for Modesto making it bigger than baseball because then when times get hard and you face adversity um it makes you dig that much deeper and um, because this game's mental. So I think when you make things bigger than just baseball and just a game, um, it makes you ultimately perform better. Let's talk a, a little bit about, so that's 2017. You guys win the, the World Cup title, your second year with USA Baseball. Next year, uh, you go in the, the first round of the Mets, and then all of a sudden, six months later, you get traded. Um, and you're you're only playing in that organization for a little while, obviously very highly touted, uh, but they, they ship you out and over to Seattle in what looks like a coup for the Mariners right now. Um, we had Josiah Gray from the Dodgers organization on last week, a guy who was also traded in his draft year, and he said, I didn't even realize that I could be traded that early. When you got that news what what was your reaction to that I mean it's it's obviously um for any big prospect to get traded early in their career or something but these trades that come in the first year of your career have to be so bizarre feeling what take us through that from your perspective um you know it kind of was just like the draft process all over again um you know it was, it was definitely an exciting time because you were going to go somewhere that you knew they really wanted you um not saying that the Mets didn't but um it was just it was an exciting start because you get to you got to start you get to start fresh with a new team again, new people and an entirely new culture. And I just it was an exciting time and um I I was excited to uh to get started over there. I know um, last year uh, the the way that Mets fans have kind of followed you since the trade has been uh, fascinating to watch. And I, I know your mom last year uh, gave an interview to Baseball America in which she said, you know, it seems kind of strange how much New York writers still want to focus on him and all of that. You had him for four months and you broke up with him. Is it weird to you how much – Mets fans have kind of clung to that. It seems like anytime you do anything, Mets Twitter explodes with, how did we lose this guy? Is it strange? Because we don't see that a ton with, with prospects who are still so early on in their career. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a, a definitely a surprise to me. Um, at the same time, I try not to look at too much into it. Uh, I'm not a big 
not a huge social media person, um, but from like everything that I hear and uh, the bits and pieces that I see, um, I think it is a surprise. But it's also it's a good feeling because you know that you know the Mets will always have a special place in my heart because they ultimately made my dream come true of playing professional baseball. And granted, it was very short lived, but um, you know I I really uh, when I see stuff like that, you know you can only appreciate it and can only um, look at it as a positive because. You know, um, they're 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 acknowledging the fact of um, your talent and how you play the game, and I think that alone says enough. That's cool. That's a good way to look at it. Yeah, and in the now you know year plus that you've been in the Mariner system, obviously last year was a, a successful one. They push you to three different levels. Um, but what's something the Mariners have done with you specifically that's allowed you to take off in the way that you have? You know, from the trade to this point in time now. Um, I think what Seattle does really well, um, is everything, or they, they really, it's tailor-made to you and, um, they really let you become your own person and they're really big on, um, they're really big on being a good person. Um, and it's not always just about baseball. Um, and they, they, there's so many outlets for guys to be successful. And I just, I truly appreciate everything that they do because um, when times get hard, like the, there's people there to help like pick you back up. It might, not, it might be a coach, it might be a teammate, but at the end of the day, there's always going to be somebody there to help you. And I think that when you have like that, that bond throughout the organization and the same goal, um, like we've had uh, a couple like um, conferences in the off season that we talked about. Um, even now, um, our team has a book club that they are doing during this time to stay in contact with each other and just having that bond in a in a clubhouse and in a just an organization in general um, is something that you can only um, acknowledge and appreciate because, like. You know, I don't think there. From a lot of my other friends that are in professional baseball, um, when I tell them stuff like that, they're just like, "Yeah, we're not like that." And I think it's very unique. But I think when it's kind of like your friends from high school, almost. I mean, because you're around these guys day in and day out, and if you can get along and you can have that bond of like a brotherhood, um, you're gonna push the guy next to you, and he's gonna push you, and you're just gonna ultimately mold and play really well together and kind of as an offshoot of that i mean the mariners it's it's no secret right now we're rebuilding and they have a very strong farm system led by yourself and guys like julio rodriguez and logan gilbert and some of whom have been your teammates already and justice sheffield justin dunn kyle lewis all made the majors last year they saw time at double a you saw time at double a last year how much are you guys as a group when you're getting together this spring or whenever you're getting together talking about shouldering the future of the seattle mariners you know it's it's more so um I think it's easy to do it during the season because you're sitting there right next to the guy, but it's really focused in on in the off season because that's when I think sometimes it can um, subconsciously, you can just kind of lose thought of it because you just, you have other things going on. You're with your family. Um, some guys have kids and 
you got to be working out, hitting and stuff like that. And the Mariners do a really good job of, in the offseason, getting us all together. Um, like I know uh, last offseason they brought us to um, Seattle and uh, they brought in like a speaker and stuff like that. And what we just talked about was what our main goal was. And just to remind us and um, so that when we went back home and we started working out and getting ready for spring training again, that it was instilled in us what we were, what we needed to do and what was that, what was at hand. And I think that is something that is very unique as well. Jared, last year I know uh, I talked with Andy McKay after the season for our organization all-star story, um, the, the Mariners player development director for those tuned in. And um, he said the thing that, that may have impressed him most about you last year is the fact that you played at three different levels and you were successful at three different levels uh, and you did it you know, mostly as a teenager and the, the maturity level and the aptitude that that takes. I know you know a lot of organizations don't like testing top prospects with midseason promotions if it seems like something that they can't handle. Not only do the Mariners do that with you they do it twice last year and they do it in three really challenging levels you started at class a full season with west virginia you make the move to modesto at class a advanced then you're in arkansas and double a by the end of the year how did you handle i feel like your your answer earlier about keeping things right now in this stage of life you know just trying to focus on one day uh each day itself is probably a, a factor that played into it but how did you handle that last year trying to adjust to you know like Andy mckay said three different apartments, three different ballparks, three different coaching staffs, all of that. What what enabled you to be good with that? You know, when you're in professional baseball, you kind of got to be um you got to be good at just going with the flow. Because like you could have a rain out, um you could you could have just any kind of storm, the game could get delayed, the bus could break down, anything. But <laughs> in this situation, um, I, I just, I really wanted to be pushed. And when I, when I made the jump from level to level, um, it was nice having like my parents to help me out, obviously. Um, but you kind of just, you got to break it up day by day because yeah, it sucks when you get called up right in the middle of a high A game that you're going to double A and then you have to drive two and a half hours back to your hometown to clean out your home and your locker and then drive all the way back to where you were playing that night so then you can catch a flight at 6 in the morning so then you can fly to Missouri to play a 7-10 game that night. <laughs> um, but at the end of the day, you got you need to just break it day by day and be good and live where your feet are at. I think that was something that I really learned last season was that um, it was out of my control Um because there was definitely times where I was like, man, I want to get called up. Like, I want to, I want to move. I want to move. But listen, like, you need to focus on where where your feet are at. And I think that was something that I learned and was very crucial for my development. And is only going to help me because I know when I get to the big league level, there's going to be things that I'm going to be like, yo, like I want X, Y, and Z. But I need to live where my feet are at to get me to that point. And I think that's what. Um, that was the message I really got from last season. 
You mentioned your parents, and that was something that, that Andy McKay said last year, too. He said uh, a kid being that mature at that age, I think a lot of credit goes to his parents. Um, and you're talking about your dad, uh, you know, helping out getting facilities ready for you and all that. Um, and I know how close you and your mom are. Tell me about your, your relationship with them and, um, you know, how that's played into the way you've been able to handle the early stages of your professional career, which are so trying and challenging. But it seems like you've been pretty, uh, I don't want to say easily able to handle them, but very adept at handling them. Hey, you know, my parents were really hard on me when it came to baseball um, and school. And I think it's transitioned to now I'm more hard on myself than they're hard on me now. Um, but I think it's a really healthy balance between the two because now instead of my parents being really hard on me, they um, are there to um, relax me when I am extremely hard on myself in situations like that. But at the end of the day, like my dad, he's been played baseball all his life. He's been around baseball all his life. It's nice to relate to something like baseball that he knows. And it's a good topic of conversation that we can talk about. And, and my mom, who when right after college, she moved to an entirely different state to start her like working career. Um, she was on the move as well. And so I can relate to her when, like we just talked about in our last question, when I'm bouncing around doing this, that, like getting called mm-hmm. up, hopping on a bus. Yeah. Like I have something to relate, relate with my mom and she's there to help me get through it and the things that I need to do and the things that I don't need to do. And so I think um, having that outlet is something that I really appreciate and I know my parents um, know that I appreciate it. Um, I just have been blessed with really like intelligent and amazing parents to the point where if whenever I need them, they're always there. We're, we're going to pivot and talk about uh, from a family relationship to a friend relationship. But I know one of uh, one of my favorite storylines in the minor leagues is the, the relationship between you and Julio Rodriguez. And if I was a Mariners fan, I'd be so excited about these two dudes who are so talented, who are coming up together and seem to just genuinely love each other. You guys have played together a little bit last year. Obviously, Julio dealt with uh, some injury issues, didn't join you at double A. Um, but tell us about that relationship. I know he was signed the year before you were drafted. He goes the the Dominican Summer League and blows up there. Um, and then really just the the way that, you know, you come into an organization and form a relationship like that so quickly. Tell us about that friendship and how that started. I think it's a really unique situation considering not many times do you see an American player and a Latin player getting along so well. I think that's something that really is uh, unique and indifferent about the two or about the situation. But you know, Julio's a really genuine guy, and he's got a contagious personality that I think anybody, not just me, gravitate towards. Um, but what makes Julio so special and somebody that um, – or the reason why we get along is because we both want the same thing. We both want to be really, really good at what we do, and we want to win a championship. And I think when you can get – when you can find someone that is as driven and um, – and wants the same thing you do, um, you can only, um, it can only be a positive thing and make you stronger as not only players, but as, as friends. And I think I look at it as a positive thing being in a new organization. When I, when I met Julio, I didn't know really anybody and I met him. Um, I think that it was a, it was a real. He was. He really welcomed me and introduced me to a lot of people because he had already been there for a year. Um, 
and to grow and go through this um, and go through the minor leagues with somebody like Julio and our first big league spring training, we both were there. It was our first experience of it to experience it with him and to have someone to relate to and talk to things about because this was this is his first uh, spring training. I think that's huge. And, uh, yeah, as somebody who's making his way towards Seattle right now, potentially with Julio Rodriguez, you talked about both wanting to be great players, both wanting to win championships. You're also somebody who we've talked about a little bit today, who's somebody who's made moves to be a major leader as early as early high school. When you envision the time when you do make it to T-Mobile Park and you make it to Seattle and you're a major leaguer, what type of major leaguer do you envision yourself being today? And has that ever changed? Do you feel like you're closer to being a, you know, a potential all-star than you were in early high school? Or has this always been the same vision for you? You know, it's always been the same vision. Whether I'm getting called up to high A or double A or triple A or the big leagues, my mentality is always to get, go up and dominate. Um, I've always had the, the mentality to go out and be the best player I can be. And um, and just dominate and help my team win and win a championship. So, um, the I guess to answer your question is that when I see myself getting called up to the big leagues, um, there's no other um, there's no other option to me than going up and dominating. And I, for me, I'm gonna go up and do everything I can to help um, help our team win and bring a championship to Seattle. All right, we'll end on these last two. Um, we talked a little bit today about the brotherhood that you felt with the Mariners organization, whether it's this book club, whether it's being welcomed in pretty quick and, and getting to know your teammates well and, and forming those bonds. Um, you know, we're in a time right now where there's a lot of strife across the country, a lot of people from different backgrounds coming together and listening to each other. How much have you, whether it's in a clubhouse, whether it's on these long book bus trips whether it's through zoom right now how much are you guys communicating about your different experiences you know as a guy from wisconsin as a black player as a player from latin america um you know how much are you guys sharing your different backgrounds and how much have you taken away from other players through your minor league experience um i think i don't know i think to answer that question i'd say that um we like you, you have guys that are from uh, let's just say like the Dominican Republic that come from like absolutely nothing, and then you may have somebody that comes from California or wherever New York or Florida, and they come from a lot. And I think um, the most powerful thing in the Mariners organization is that no matter where you're from or what you've been through or anything like that everybody is always there to and, and treat you the same and i think that's something that is very powerful and it is um like the biggest the biggest thing i noticed when i first came over to seattle i've told people this many times is how friendly everybody was when i first came there it didn't matter if you were from the dominican from the u.s um, from Japan, it did not matter. Everyone is extremely genuine. And when you have that going around in the organization, and it's not even just like the minor leagues or the big leagues, like it's everybody. Um, 
it's a it only helps everyone's development to be the best not only player but person that they can be and like that's something that i i think is really powerful all right jerry we'll, we'll end on this one we're asking basically everybody we talk to these days uh this question we don't know when minor league baseball is going to return if it's going to return in, in 2020 in whatever form but in your 24 months now as a professional baseball player through your many stops along the way, what has been your favorite minor league story? Um, my favorite minor league story would probably be um, when I got called up from high A to double A because I literally, it was the third inning and my manager said, Hey man, um, pack up your stuff. You're going to double A. And my family my my dad and my brother actually flew in to come watch me play that night, and they were in the stands, and my mom was in the air on her way to the game. And I remember I called my dad down from the stands, told him that I was going to double A, and we, like I kind of I mentioned on a little bit, but we had to drive two and a half hours from San Jose to Modesto, pack up all my stuff in my home locker, then drive to my um, whole family's house, pack up my entire thing at their house, my entire room at their house, then drive two and a half hours back. And we ended up getting back to my, our hotel at, like I want to say it was like 1.30 in the morning or 2 or something like that. Or I think it was about 1.30. And I had to hop on a flight at 6 o'clock the next morning and fly out to... Um, Springfield, Missouri, to play in my first double double A game on like two and a half hours of sleep. Oh man, I think I think that's a the quintessential story, but also the cool one of the cool stories is that getting called up. I don't think a lot of people realize what's involved in that. So, so thank you for sharing that, and thank you so much for joining us, Jared. As we mentioned, one of our five nationwide ambassadors uh, for this year, and the top prospect in, in the Seattle Mariners system um you know best of luck with with the training as we gear towards whatever the 2020 season is going to look like and like i said thank you so much for joining us yep thank you guys as an official partner of minor league baseball nationwide's here to make sure you're protected for every pitch life throws at you visit nationwide.com today to see how we can help meet your needs Nationwide is on your side. It's obviously been a, uh, a challenging time for anything to resemble business as usual across uh, the sporting landscape and, and much of the world, but uh, but a lot of it still goes on, and we uh, always cover it with uh, our good buddy Benjamin Hill, who joins the show. He's got some stuff that's up on the site that we're going to talk about, and uh, Ben, more importantly, how how are things where you are right now? We've discussed you know many times, you and Sam are, are both in Brooklyn. Uh, how you been doing the last week? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay, hanging in there. I mean, I, I live in Dimas Park, and the immediate area has been pretty, you know, pretty as normal as normal can be right now. But um, yeah, you don't have to go very far to find um, some pretty serious, uh, you know, protests that have taken place. You know, the sound of helicopters flying over my apartment that I guess are monitoring the protests. You know, it's become a semi-regular thing. Uh, it's a it's a strange time, and. Uh, you know, as we were talking earlier, just kind of constantly thinking about what can I do, should I do, should I not do, et cetera, et cetera. 
as I uh, largely just hang out in my bedroom during a pandemic and try to focus to some extent on, on good old minor league baseball. <laughs> So here we are. It is uh, it is quite a time. Um, but before all of the uh, the events of the last week and so on, um, there were some things going on around the minor leagues that we talked about on last week's episode of the show uh, as they pertain to ballparks uh, reopening to a certain degree and teams trying to stay engaged with their fan bases. And um, we've discussed teams that are doing takeout food from their concession stands and all that kind of stuff. We're now seeing some ballpark events. And we talked about a, a movie in Daytona. Um, they showed the the movie 42 on the video board. Uh, the Rocky Mountain Vibes in Colorado Springs, uh, just an hour or so from where I'm sitting right this moment, they did a drive-in movie uh, at Security Service Field, which is really cool. They let people come into the ballpark, park their cars in the outfield and watch a movie. This is a, a really cool idea that I feel like a lot of teams might jump on. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it comes down to, you know, obviously with no baseball right now, no baseball for the foreseeable future, teams are trying to, you know, justify – you know, be they're, they're entertainment businesses at all times, but now without baseball, just like how can we be an entertainment business? And, uh, you know, so we talked about the Daytona Tortugas, uh, Tortugas movie night last week. But in Florida, you know, the restrictions regarding COVID-19 are comparatively loose. And, uh, you know, they're allowing um, up to 25% capacity back into sporting venues. So in the case of a team like Daytona, that's about 1,000 people. Uh, in Colorado, uh, as you know, Tyler, the uh, being there right now um you know it's a stricter situation than florida so one of the reasons that rocky mountain vibes when they decided to do a movie night made it a drive-in because that's the only way they could do it um per the restrictions of the state of colorado uh in terms of getting that many people into the ballpark and when i first heard that the rocky mountain vibes were doing a drive-in night I don't know the term for it, but I assumed the way you see sometimes at concerts and whatnot that there was going to be some sort of, you know, temporary plastic flooring placed on the outfield, uh, something of of that nature. Uh, but there was not fans. They showed Back to the Future and um, they sold 160 parking spaces, which they mapped out uh, after mapping out the stadium on Google Earth and kind of exploring the uh, stadium's outfield on Google Earth, mapping out 160 parking lots or parking spots on the outfield and having fans literally drive onto the outfield grass on uh, spray-painted parking spaces to watch Back to the Future. And, uh, you know, they sold out. There was only, I think, 160 spaces available, but they sold out in minutes. Uh, they're going to do it again this week uh, with League of Their Own. Raise the price five bucks because I think, you know, when you sell out in three minutes, that shows their demand. So get a little bit more revenue coming in you know i talked to chris phillips the team's um, president general manager for quite some time about this yesterday and he said look you know doing this uh doing toasties takeout you know their form of curbside concessions you know it doesn't come close to replacing the sort of revenue you get from game day but you have to think about any little things you can do uh you know to keep your organization engaged to be an entertainment business you know to bring in some sort of revenue uh during what are obviously very difficult times which leads to these necessities the mother of invention type of things like seeing 160 cars drive onto the outfield uh, in late May to watch a movie at a minor league ballpark. You know, I, I do kind of find some joy in these sort of things, uh, just how creative teams are continuing to be, even under these circumstances. And does this feel like something they could continue even into the off season? I mean, a lot of teams 
uh, well, no teams are playing right now, so there, there's a lot of lost revenue there. But let's think about like when baseball does return and and some of these teams are playing over the summer. Could this be something they do, especially in the warmer climates, maybe in a Daytona, do something like this in December and January to keep the revenue streams coming even in the off season? I, I think we can see that. I mean, I don't think we'll see many drive-ins because as restrictions loosen, uh, you can bring in more people and bring in more revenue by you know having people come in without their cars as well. But in terms of movie nights and Sam, as you said, especially warm weather climates, I can see these things, um, you know, persisting throughout this current um, off season, bonus off season, and into the actual off season if it comes to that. Um, I think in a lot of ways, teams are going to keep doing a lot of the things that they've been forced to do uh, during the pandemic uh, just because they realized it is something they can continue to do as an entertainment company, as an event business, uh, independent of the baseball. So even when baseball comes back, I wouldn't be surprised to still see uh, in the off season and during off days, you know, movie nights of this nature, uh, you know, a, a greater concessions operation um, that, that operates outside of the game day itself. Um, and, and that sort of thing, because I think it, it's all about being as uh, nimble and reactive and proactive as you can be right now. And I, I think that means uh, saying yes to just about everything that you can safely, reasonably, affordably pull off. Ben, let's uh, discuss some other stuff going on uh, currently on the site. You've had the series of stories on uh, fun facts of teams in each league in the minor leagues. And the Texas League is up most recently, correct? Yes, the Texas League is the uh, fifth fifth and most recent installment. I just started in AAA and been going down, so it was International League, Pacific Coast League, Eastern League, Southern League, and now, yes, the Texas League, the 18 Texas League. And as I said before, uh, these articles kind of take me a long time to do, so you know, when I'm doing a uh, 18 League, it feels really nice because that's a lot less work than a 16-team League. Yeah, you can do the math. One of the uh, we're not going to go through all of the facts because we want you to go read them for yourselves. But what uh, what are the favorites of yours from the Texas League this time? Um, you know, this is something sometimes I find my own writing <laughs> from the past and I'm like, oh, I'm going to reuse that fact. <laughs> uh, and that's uh, yeah, the benefit of, uh, you know, having done this job for a long time. I can kind of constantly cannibalize myself and it's not plagiarism because I'm just taking from me the original source. <laughs> I'm just this endlessly content-generating body. But in one of the, my other articles, I found that I had mentioned I had a write-up of the Arkansas Travelers, and um, obviously they've had that team. They're based in Little Rock. They've had that team name for a long time, uh, going back to 1901, have had a team with that name in the city in every season, but like seven since 1901. But they were always the Little Rock Travelers up till I believe, like 1957. And when they changed their name to the Arkansas Travelers, they were actually the first professional team to name themselves after a state and not a city. Ah, and that was kind of my mind i gotta say i couldn't believe yeah i was like oh yeah but if you think about it think about the teams that anyone that you can think of that had a state name yeah i think they came after the 50s and uh you know hey i'm gonna trust my own writing i'm not sure what my source was the first time before i stole it from (laughs) myself this time but uh, you know i'm I'm a man with good sources and good information so uh, it was clear Though it's like the New York Yankees, we're calling that New York City Yankees, yeah. Right, that's a good, that's a good asterisk. But I would I would call New York uh, every New York team, New York Giants, uh, New York Yankees, um, representing New York City. Um, that's a, that's a good point. I think pe- because of course it does. When you know the New York Yankees were never thought to represent New York State, as in people in Albany and Utica and Buffalo and Binghamton, and uh, those are the four New York City. Uh, 
New York cities I know outside of New York City. But um, <laughs> yeah, that is a good a good asterisk. Syracuse, I know that one too. Um, but that is a, that is a very good point. Um, yeah, so the Texas League, you know, you can go down some rabbit holes for sure. I mean, the first iteration of the league, or you know, can be traced all the way back to uh, you know the the nineteenth century. I think it was eighteen eighty eight. And the first team, you know, just apropos of nothing, but the first team to win a championship were called the Hams, the Dallas Hams in like 1888. And then the next year, it was won by the Houston Babies. So the Hams and the Babies were the original two <laughs> Texas League champions. The Hams and the Babies. Sounds like a weird dream I had once. <laughs> no, now you need to explain yourself. <laughs> uh, yeah. now, I have to come, now I have to come up with a dream to have justified my weird comment. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you were you were being real there. I thought no, you were really getting no, into something. No, I don't. I don't dream about. I should dream about ham more. I'm a I'm a ham fan. You know, why not? Nice, nice Christmas ham. All right, I'm gonna wrap this up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz. Uh, what else is going on and coming up for you? Yeah, well, I'll continue with uh, this league series. Uh, Next up, I'll be moving to Class A Advanced. So that'll be um, start with uh, California. So if you uh, have weird facts about any California League teams, you know, get in touch at Ben's Biz. Uh, you know where to find me. And I'll continue to, you know, um, cover just what teams are doing in these strange times. And, um, yeah, just keep improvising and keep trying to maintain some sort of, I don't even want to say relevance, but just some something unique, something original, something that uh, can be of interest to people even during these strange times and i think that's what we're all trying to do and i'm just rambling just trying to justify my own existence you know how it goes but you know i'm doing my best that's why we have sam on this show because if it was just me and you it would be an hour of us doing that <laughs> so least, it really would we've got, a, we've got a good counterbalance who uh who keeps us grounded it's good um and uh benjamin hill as noted you can find on the tweets at ben's biz uh and you can get in touch with your uh your california and presumably to follow carolina league fun facts and then midwest and south atlantic and uh we'll we'll be eagerly awaiting all of those of course as they come out and uh you can find all of ben's stuff on the site and ben we'll talk to you again next week man thanks be safe yeah you guys as well thanks dudes Which Copala de Versan hat is the best? Now is your chance to crown the champion of all 92 Copa Caps via the Greatest Corra Tournament, presented by Echo Outdoor Power Equipment. The recently launched campaign provides you, the fan, a chance to win exclusive prizes from Echo and select official on-field Copa hats while celebrating the cultural contributions of Hispanic communities through culturally relevant on-field identities. Be sure to join in the fun and vote at MLB.com contests. We will wrap up this week's episode of the Show Before the Show podcast. But before we do, Sam has a Nationwide Prospect Fun Fact for this week. Yeah, so as you can probably guess, uh, the Nationwide Prospect Fun Fact this week was going to be about, be about Nick Heath, uh, our first guest on the show. We've, we've shared a lot of Jared Kelnick facts over the years, and um, he's featured in a, a few of our MLB The Show simulations, will, which will come back at, at some point in the future. We'll, we'll determine when that will be. But um, one cool one I found about Nick Heath, you heard us mention before, he led the minor leagues in stolen bases last year with 60 between Northwest Arkansas and AAA, Oklahoma, or AAA Omaha. 
That's not the fun fact. The fun fact is since he debuted in 2016, Nick Heath is tied for the minor league lead in stolen bases. So this is over the 2016, 2017, 2018, and 2019 season. He has stolen 160 bases uh, over that time. That is tied with Ian Miller for the most in all of minor league baseball. Um, there are some other notable names you'll you'll know in the top 10. Miles Straw is there. Wes Rogers, Tyler from the, the Rocky system. Jorge right. Mateo, uh, Roman Fields, DJ Burt, Garrett Hampson, again from the – the Rockies uh, organization. Vidal Brujan is number 11 to throw in a top 100 prospect. But of all the fast guys in the minor leagues, uh, Nick Heath has been as good at using his speed as almost anybody else except for Ian Miller. Both of those guys tied at the top with uh, 160 stolen bases since 2016. One thing that I am uh, sort of bummed about not getting to ask Nick, and we could have because he was so generous with his time, but I looked at the clock and was like, man, we've had him for like 45 minutes. But I mentioned it toward the end of the interview. His mom ran track at Kansas State, and I wonder how much technique he's gleaned from her because bursting out of a, a starting position as a track athlete and trying to get the same sort of first step electricity as a base stealer, that's got to be pretty amazing. I would imagine somebody's probably written about that, uh, and so I may go Google and dig that up right now. And also try to figure out if he can help me land a record deal since we know he's a 71 year old english music producer i really thought you were going to say something about like help your first step out of the gate which (laughs) that ship has sailed man. i'm long past that yeah believe me when i run uh in person it looks like watching someone running in slow motion on video replay it's incredible it's really it's really just a testament to my athleticism like is that guy okay is he gonna is he gonna survive this is he is is that exercise for him because he's not really moving that's me i i have thought about how you know there were some ideas that were thrown around about this year's draft and what that was going to look like and one of the ideas was is there going to be a combine because college seasons were short high school seasons in some places were not existent it's been a while since we've seen guys are they going to send guys to florida or something to get them workouts before the draft that didn't end up happening because scouts do their work a lot of these scouts have seen these players before what have you but if they were to do a combine were we going to have to be like the rich eisens of that combine (laughs) and like it what would that be would that be us testing our velocity against a radar would it be doing the 40 would it be like our first to third uh speed something like that i don't know but i'm I'm grateful we don't have to i don't want to do any of that I think yeah. the only skill that I ever had was hitting, and uh, I don't want to do that now at 34. <laughs> you know what's I mean, funny? I hit uh, like 396 as a senior in high school, so I just round that up and tell people that I hit 400, although I just announced it on a podcast that that's a lie. Um, but I was looking at uh, at Nick's um, college page from Northwestern State, and it said he hit 400 as a sophomore, a junior, and a senior. And I think it's incredible that he said he was told at one time in his high school career that he wasn't good enough to play high school ball. And then he hit 403 straight years. What? Was that in high school or in college? In high school. In high school. Okay. Yeah. I was like, I'm looking at his Northwestern State stats. Oh, and that's- yeah, no, in high school. Sophomore, junior, and senior year in high school, an over 400 hitter. And somebody was dumb enough to be like, nah, you're not going to cut it at this level, kid. Well, so somebody's at home embarrassed right now. So, oh man. Uh, but again, just our biggest thanks uh, to Nick Heath and to uh, to Jerry Kellenick as well this week, and Benjamin Hill, of course, for always being so gracious with his time. And uh, we, uh, I think, are are past an era where we will even have a thought in our heads of hopefully we'll get back to talking about baseball and all those sorts of things soon. Um, 
yeah, we all we all certainly want that, but it I think is encouraging to see how many people are so mindful of the fact that so much is so much bigger than us right now. And uh, for those of you who who tuned into this week's episode and um, are already undoubtedly engaging with us and uh, and giving us your thoughts, um, we we appreciate that engagement and that discourse uh, as it pertains to things that are productive and are going to move us forward as a society. And uh, we cannot thank members of the baseball family like Nick Heath enough. Um, you know, I texted Sam earlier this week that Josiah Gray, who we had on last week right before all of this started, Josiah Gray would have been a perfect person to talk to this week as well because of the things that we talked about him uh, or talked about with him when it comes to being a role model and being a a member of the black community uh, in baseball right now and all of that. Um, But Nick Heath, just uh, an incredible conversation for us to have and huge thanks to him and huge thanks to all of you for tuning in. Um, did Did I get it? Did I cover the things that we had to wrap up with? I don't even remember. No, I, th- I think that's I think that's everything. We'll see you guys next week. We'll see you guys next week.